Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hey everyone, I am back with three chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. This is an audio novella, an in-progress audio novella that I've been sharing as I go. It's best to start at the beginning. A reminder also that this entire audio novella is meant for an adult audience. Please listen responsibly. Thank you for your listenership. And as always, I really appreciate your thoughts and reflections about the episodes. If at any point you're called to share the experience that you've been having listening. It truly means a lot to me. I will begin our next set of chapters with a flashback from chapter one of a dream visitation. And then we'll get into it. When I get home, I dream that a panther pounces on me head on and eats me. I wake up, vibrating above my bed with my bedroom in grayscale. I am slammed back into the same dream, but now the panther is gone and I am free to walk into an amphitheater. Red velvet seats and curtains. One of the leaders from the event is on stage, telling me I've graduated, and there is applause. I exit the amphitheater and the panther comes up from a side corridor and pounces me again, but this time without thinking, I grab the panther by the scruff of their neck and say, what are you doing? We're friends now. From Animal Totems in the I Ching by Brynja Magnuson, Hexagram 51, The Unknown, Black Panther. Hexagram 51 Hexagram 51 depicts a moment of power shift so violent it arouses terror. Like thunder causing all to be roused, it is divine intervention causing a rearrangement of self. During this moment of shocking thunder, while most have been shaken, a wise man kept his composure while in his ritual worship. The man in his meditation uses the crashing thunder to search even deeper into his heart without being shaken. His deep reverence is to be strived for, but all those who were terrified by the choking event are still brought ultimately to joy through their initial fear. The shocking thunder symbolizes a shocking event. It is a hexagram that depicts success because whether or not one is debilitated by fear, the event has caused one's actions to be transformed for the better. Black Panther As a medicine animal, the black panther represents facing fears and surrendering to the dark unknown. It is a symbol that accompanies many initiation rites for this reason. All humans must learn to face the unknown at some point. However, there are ritual ceremonies and spontaneous life events which administer this teaching before the passage of death. When black panther comes to you, it is a symbol of courageously journeying into an unknowable place. 
This could be an internal journey during a ceremony or an external journey to the precipice of a novel endeavor. To engage in such an undertaking requires tremendous courage and strength to calmly venture forward with an open mind, helping hand, and a loving heart. And again, that is from Animal Totems in the I Ching by Brynja Magnuson. Chapter 27 I'm home for Thanksgiving 2016, the first time seeing my mom since April. She had offered that we find something fun or rejuvenating to do, a spa weekend maybe, after the breakup, and I declined not having forgiven her really for her attempts to manage my brain chemistry, and over the years I had to lie to her. And having had the relief of that entire charade come out, I opted for silence in the new space of not having to pretend anymore. While we weren't talking much, she was having a whole awakening in response to the grief of my dad's passing, pursuing joy and gratitude on a daily basis, reading Brene Brown. She took it hard that I didn't want to spend time with her, but she gave me space. The second night I'm back at my childhood home, we pull into the garage, my mom is driving, and I notice the empty space where my dad's car used to be parked. An empty space I had registered as a visual image alone the day before, but didn't think anything of it. She is turning the ignition off. The parking lights go off one light bulb by the door. Mom, whatever happened to Dad's car? I say lightly. She looks over at me, about to form words, frozen, as we sit in the dim light. Mom, what happened? You didn't know, she asks. A vapor of memory, us in her bathroom, after my dad's funeral, talking before the mirror, so there are four of us, two of my mom, two of me. Sabrina, I want to give Aiden a gift, but only if you're okay with it. No, I don't know, I respond. I sold the car to our friend Sid's daughter, and I gave Aiden the money. You gave Aiden the money. I thought you knew. I didn't know when. Mid May. Sabrina, please don't be mad. I assumed he would have told you. It was a gift, like we talked about. I thought, of course you'd know. We had talked about gifting him back after the funeral. That was the plan. Eden was hardly speaking to me in the middle of May, and that's when I was deliberating whether or not to move in. I feel my body begin to heat up. Mom, I'm enraged. Not really at you. She looks like a little deer. She didn't know anything that was happening in May between Nathan and I. I didn't tell her. I'm spinning. I run inside upstairs to my brother's old room. I can't take the context of my own room, my things still loosely there on their way out. It's my brother's room. The blue carpet, 
the desk that's now become storage, the triple sliding closet door. Somewhere as a kid, I made the choice to bypass anger and move right to forgiveness. But I forgot the origin of that choice, forgot I'd made a choice, and was always searching for higher perspective, enlightened perspectives, or surrendering to sadness like some kind of deep-puffed humility. Why? It's just grief below the anger, so why bother getting angry? Here in my brother's old room, I find myself writhing in rage, my body contracted to the shape of a seed, and white, vibrating lights bursting in the air, zapping, electric. And I realized the lights had never accompanied my anger before. Maybe colors swirling, but never the lights. These white flames. I can't stop myself from pulling out my phone and calling Aiden, then starting to write a text when it goes to voicemail. A white flame burning up the will I have to protect the relationship in the form of never saying anything that could compromise it. What am I holding on to? I write, Who the fuck are you? I just found out you took the cash. I never knew. You lied to me so much and acted so fucking shady. Don't think we're friends or ever will be. Dishonesty, concealing information, betrayal. Deep betrayal just got deeper. Do not ever speak to me as though we're friends. I hope I never run into you. I sit there, thinking. I would have reconsidered the move, maybe. I would have thought the money meant something. But wasn't it just a gift? Purely? Or was him receiving it a symbol that we were somehow together, still? No one told me. I let myself reach into a deeper place of bitterness and hatred than I'd ever touched before, watching myself transfigure like another layer of loss. What if the relationship was never even about me? At the end of the day, it was just a matter of business between my dad's soul and Aiden. I don't know what the fuck they had unsettled between them from prior lives, Fuck their sinistry. Who is Aiden, even? Was him coming to the funeral just a job at the end of the day? He was paid by God to watch over me? The job's finished? My dad's become ashes. His car liquidated. My relationship to Aiden invoiced for $1,200. That was the humble salary at the end of the day. Surely, the job of taking care of me for four months is worth a greater salary. Surely, I'm more high-maintenance than that. What subsidized it? Or maybe it's reduced. An inconvenience fee for finishing the job by fucking his ex and telling me I could move in as a friend and maybe fuck him on the sly too. Let's not upset Kat. Oh, but in the meantime, while that's all happening and you're avoiding me, do accept a wire from my mom. The lights have not accompanied these thoughts, so... I take my phone back out as a lifeline, this time to open the notes app and write to the lights, throw some ideas at the blank white screen to see what's true. I arrive at the thought, healing my relationship with my mom is not my partner's responsibility, and it gets a light. 
improving my relationships with my family will only help my love life. Another light. Aiden didn't tell me because he was injured and dealing with his dog's surgery and avoiding me. My mom didn't tell me because she was grappling with the new awareness that we weren't as close as she thought. Somehow the two of them conveniently assumed I'd know. And they each had their own reasons for avoiding me. Two hours later, I'm still in the same place, catatonic. Aiden texts me back. Whoa. Don't know what cash you're talking about. You sound upset. My mom wired you $1,200. I respond immediately. He writes, I thought you knew that. I did not try to hide anything. I graciously accepted a very sweet gift. I didn't know things would go so rough between us. I write, You stopped telling me things and stopped talking to me and went back to Kat. Acted like we had a future. Made it safe to trust you and then you bailed like it didn't mean anything to you. I didn't find out about the money until tonight. No one told me. Didn't mean for that to happen. It's funny. I was thinking of writing you today to ask if you'd want to hang out, he says. He continues. And then this again. This time when I, quote, stopped talking to you, when I was stuck in bed for 20 hours a day for a few weeks, and then I hear that you're not moving in through my roommates. Sorry you feel betrayed, but you might look at how you have influenced these complex events that have hurt us both. Happy Thanksgiving, Sabrina. Lots of love to you. I hope appreciation, gratitude, and thankfulness find you in humble abundance. I write back. I told you I wasn't moving in before I told anyone else, and I made that decision from a place of crying all day for days because you told me you wanted a friend and not a partner, and I had no idea what that meant, or if you'd get back together with Kat while I lived with you and tell me we just have to be friends. I was waiting to talk to you for days and you weren't there before I pulled the trigger. I couldn't handle it all back then, the combination of everything that happened all at once. I didn't know you were hurt about this because you acted like you didn't want me. I'm sorry I misunderstood you. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay, he writes. I could have been better about communicating more while resting my brain. But I was in that healing space and I thought you were busy. There is a pattern, though, with you feeling like I'm abandoning you and so you abandon me. Like last time I called to say hi and thought it was nice and then you said... I'm not saying don't call me again, but basically don't call me again. Anyway, I'm sorry things went the way they did. I'm glad we're in touch still. Care about you very much. I respond, summarizing the five-month-long mental breakdown I've been having, that I wasn't busy, that I was in crisis and didn't feel he was available, and he doesn't reply. Radio silence for a while. It happened that I had a session scheduled with Mark Jones the following morning. Morning for me is evening in England. I'm still postured in a knot. It's just audio today, not video. There's a Wi-Fi connection issue at my mom's house. In my brother's room, sitting before the TV that's not on. Staring at the blank black screen as a conversation with Mark transports me somewhere timeless for a moment. 
I think Mark is a genius. I don't remember the conversation at all. I just remember a feeling like meeting with a professor at an academy of soul, having a chat in the afterlife. I'd called a friend the night before who says, Aiden's just so sketchy. I always had a bad feeling about him. And it's not the same. Everyone tells me that breakups are hard, that you'll just love more the next time. No one understands that Aiden and I met on the astral plane, or that he was profoundly psychically attuned to me, only to essentially die in a moment I felt I could have prevented, that all along I had been trying to prevent in some way, or what making love felt like it was beyond. No one understands. I'm only given platitudes. How could someone who touched me that deeply betray me? I remember feeling met on some deeper level in the session with Mark, like the moment of betrayal was granted dignity, like it was an impact, an awakening. After speaking again to Dina and bringing the matter to her, I decide to stop grieving my dad for a while, to let him be dead to me also. I can't put my finger on it, it's something to do with his failure of parenting me, resulting in me having attachment wounds. But I decide that all of this is his fault. I find all the logical conclusions I can to argue that it's his fault. I have a case. And I decide just to be mad at him and to freeze him out for a while. People can think I'm in a bad way because my dad died, my boyfriend sustained a head injury and dumped me but I'm really in a bad way because I'm sitting in the crater of this impact and trying to understand why love has been so hard for me and why I can't get it no matter how hard I try. And do I really try? And for what? And if it's because I didn't feel loved enough as a kid and never realized it until my adult life, as my romantic partners evoke feelings in me that are too deep to bear sanely and put me in some kind of hell spiral around the fear of going back to emotional poverty, Love gives me the energy I felt I never had. And obviously, it's my parents' fault. Then I'm mad at my dad for evaporating and leaving me with these burdens. I can't access sweet memories about my dad anymore. They flush away from me and for a while, all I can remember is a blank emptiness, the distance, the ways I can say he wasn't even there just like he's ashes in the wind now. Chapter 28 A day after returning to Olympia, I see one of Damien's professional matches at a casino an hour away. Damien's friends are there. A rougher crowd, bros, cigarettes. Even the women are all taller like the men. Traditional finger tattoos in 40s. Raspy voices, coughing, howling communal catchphrases. Between them all, they have one or two hotel rooms to pregame in. Everyone is exceedingly nice and welcoming to me. No one treats me like I don't belong, even though by appearances I don't. They are wide-eyed and curious about astrology, and Damien only speaks highly of me. One man there seems especially engaged in conversation with me. For some reason, I remember him shirtless, 
Maybe he was in the hotel room. Maybe my memory has simply fabricated that detail and he was just wearing a white t-shirt. He was extremely attractive, angelic almost. And most of the time while we spoke, I saw little sparkles of light on his face. He tells me he is homeless, figuring it out. He wants to connect with me again. If you want to, he says, you probably don't want to have anything to do with me. The blue lights dance over his face. Seeing his athletic body and his present gaze, as though he sees and senses my aura in a deep way, I am perplexed, but I also calculate. His randomness, his homelessness, his liminal station in life, his admittance that I'm better off without him. Would it be worth it? Or am I better off taking his word? Anyway, I'm here with Damien. It's thrilling to watch Damien be announced on stage, donning a robe. Impressive to watch him fight and how quickly he can kick his leg up to kick his opponent's face. The agility. But also the way he can quickly evade having his foot grabbed from underneath him. He kicks and pulls back too quickly to be caught. I understand his connection to the fox now. But it's hard to watch him get punched back. It's strange to be in the crowd, as this man's lover, to feel especially affronted vicariously as he is bruised and bludgeoned before the audience. Damien has seizures throughout the next day. I understand now the scars across his lips. One afternoon, some months later, I met a kirtan. I'm ecstatic, seeing colors, chanting Sanskrit. I'm supposed to see Damien later, and I want to have psychedelic sex with him again. I feel open, ready to travel. That night, he doesn't return my text, never calls. I experience forceful visions of comic book art, a close-up of a fist colliding with a jaw, a tooth and drops of blood flying. Kapow! In jagged sound effect bubble. It's heavy, grating. I almost feel sick. I know something is wrong. A fight? A seizure? One could take him to jail, the other to a hospital. And I begin to wonder if being merged with him is worth it. I become only one degree of separation away from people fatally overdosing, people going to prison. We've only had sex a handful of times, and already our souls are bonded enough that I can feel his violent distress from a distance. I thought I could just have something fun, something nourishing to my woman, maybe even something intimate, while I wait for hell to end, while I build a bridge out of hell. But is this worth it? He apologizes the next day, tells me he had a seizure. The next time we have plans, he has to cancel because he totaled his car. The thing is, I'd seen it in a dream the night before, and I'm not surprised. I'd already received a visual of him inside a black car, flipping and tumbling several times across a road and into a ditch. He sends me a photo that matches the image I already saw in a dream of the car's final resting position. Fine. Go ahead and die on me if you don't go to prison first, I think. 
A throbbing numbness overcomes me when I look at the photo of the black car flipped upside down. Not that I want him to die, or that I have such power or control, but I'm tired of death, my father, Aiden's head injury, and this hell realm I can't seem to get a breath of air out and up from, except through my diligent labors. I wonder if I'm cursed or doomed, if I'll ever just get to be happy. Damien pulls away from me too, texts me sometime later to say sorry for being distant, that he really respects and adores me and knows I'm going to have this epic life. He's staying away from me because he's in a dark place and doesn't want to drag me down with him. I've already given up, but it's nice to hear how much he cares. To get to remember that, despite the fallen conditions of this man's life and the fallen place from which I meet him, he always meant it when we made love. I'd drown in colors washing over us, and the intimate pleasure of getting to know the softness and sweetness of a hard, malefic man. Chapter 29 Back in August 2016 I didn't know why I bought this book this morning, but now I know it's for you, Dina says, handing me a copy of The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. It begins. Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan, more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly, about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties, as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. They voice their belief, noisily or subtly, that their difficulties represent a unique kind of affliction that should not be, and that has somehow been especially visited upon them, or else upon their families, their tribe, their class, their nation, their race, or even their species, and not upon others. I know about this moaning because I have done my share. Life is a series of problems. Do we want to moan about them or solve them? Do we want to teach our children to solve them? Discipline is the basic set of tools we require to solve life's problems. I think now would be a great time for a road trip, Dina prompts me. Dark nights of the soul are excellent times to take road trips, just to wander and talk to God that way. She recommends me the homeopathic Ignatia. On the road, I microdose mushrooms meaning to only feel them very subtly. I take one of the Ignatia pills and drive. As though a series of water drops collect and collect and form a pool that is sending a wave through my stomach and up and out through my tears, I think, I did love Aiden. I start to remember the smell of the towels in his house, the essential oils he carried around 
the time somewhere in New Mexico he found an orange tree next to a boarded-up abandoned house, and he rattled the oranges out of the tree with the didgeridoo, the way he was laughing, collecting the oranges in his shirt. I remember sleeping together at night, intertwined as snakes, after praying together, thanking God for all the beautiful things that had happened that day, and how we'd both see tunnels of color, and I'd even spin gently into sleep. I loved him. My tears feel surgical, and the freeway before me grows vertical. Jesus, Sabrina, I didn't mean to be high. My heart racing, I pull off the freeway and stop into a gas station and run into the bathroom, where I think, I'm peeking in a gas station bathroom. I run the water, crystalline, pink gemstone glittering water, and return to my car while I wait for the visuals to stop. I am next to a hedge I wish I could hide inside of without alarming the people around me. I've used couch surfing to find a place to stay in Boulder, Colorado. I arrive at a housing co-op where somewhere around 25 people live. My host, Kyle, blonde, eyebrow and septum piercings, young, 22 maybe. Kyle explains to me that the house is non-hierarchical. Anything I want to eat in the kitchen, I can eat. They've dumpster-dived a significant portion of it. Any assistance I need, I can turn to anyone. As Kyle is not a leader but an equal, he assures me. There are bedrooms, there are beds and closets. He leads me to my room, a sleeping bag on the floor of a shared library and office space. My roommate is also a traveler. She is making vegan pie crust in a blender in the kitchen when I first meet her. She is experimenting with polyamory and she has two boyfriends now. She loves numerology and pulls up something for me that says I love for my power to be multiplied. I meet one of the co-op residents in the hallway. So, what's your deal? They ask, hanging their body to the side from a banister, blue lights sparkling over their face. I follow the lights, and I talk to them for a few minutes as they sway, bashful, tell me about their day, the bike ride, the way they feel awkward, a dream they had last night. At a rest stop in Wyoming on the way home, it's late, and I decide to sleep in the back seat of my car, which I'd never done before. I cover the seat buckles with sweatshirts, take out my sleeping bag, crack the window, and stare at thousands of stars before I fall asleep. And I wake up at dawn, bewilderingly in love. I wake from an imageless and thoughtless dream, a dream of being in love. I don't understand it, but I know I will remember the Wyoming rest stop forever, the archetypal dawn, a promise. (laughs) ¶¶